0: Okay, good evening, everyone, and um, welcome to tonight's event entitled Representing Atrocity, Distant Suffering, and the Politics of Pity. Um, And it's hosted by the Human Rights Centre here at the LSE. Um, I'm Claire Moon, and I'm based in the Human Rights Centre and also the Department of Sociology. Um, And I'm chairing tonight's event, which will finish at 8 o'clock. Um, Our guests will be speaking for the first hour and then for the um, remaining half an hour um, there'll be opportunity for you to um, ask questions um, during that time. Um, The event will be followed at 8pm by a drinks reception to which you're all invited. I'm not actually going to announce the location of that now in case you rush off and do the socialising before the hard bit's been done, Um, but I will announce the location at the end of the the talk. and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our speakers tonight, um, and we have three speakers. You will notice that actually there are only two <laughs> on either side of me at the moment, um, and we're hoping... One of our speakers has come from the States. He was supposed to have arrived this morning, so we're hoping that he might um, make some magical appearance um, during, the, um, during the evening, um, and um, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll be speaking, and I'll, I'll also introduce our absent guest. Um, in the hope that that might spirit him into being. Um, First of all, Lily Kuliaraki is Professor of Media and Communications here at the LSE. She's published extensively on suffering in the news, on war and conflict reporting, and on humanitarian communication. And she's the author of The Spectatorship of Suffering and the forthcoming Humanitarian Imaginary, amongst many other works. Um, And in these works, she engages specifically with spectacles of suffering and the politics of pity in forms of humanitarian communication. Stefan Mestrovich, um, our missing person, is Professor of Sociology at Texas A&M University, is a war crimes expert and he's testified in trials regarding torture and prisoner abuse in Abu Ghraib and at the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. His latest books Rules of Engagement and the Trials of Abu Ghraib are both accounts of the cases on which he served as expert witness. He's probably best known for um, his book Post-Emotional Society, which has become one of the touchstone texts in thinking about suffering, pity, and humanitarian communication. And on my right, Bruna Seu is Senior Lecturer in Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck College in London, and she's published in the areas of Gender, Psychoanalysis, human rights and social responsibility. And her recent work has concentrated on public responses to news of human rights abuses. So she's been engaging with the effects of humanitarian communication on its consumers, um, looking into altruism, denial, and (coughs) emotional responses to information about suffering and atrocity. So each of our speakers will engage, I think, in quite different ways with um, the theme of tonight's talk and um, they'll speak for around 20 minutes each before we open up the floor to questions from you. So I'll hand you over to our first speaker, Professor Lili Kouliaraki. Okay,
1: yes, that's perfect. Well, thank you very much, Claire, for inviting me to this event. I was the Centre of Global Justice here at the LSE. I'm delighted to be here, I'm honoured to be here, and thank you all for coming. Um, uh, Let me start uh, straight away um, with some images that I think illustrate very clearly what we might call a politics of pity. Now, we all recognise these images. Uh, They are, if if you like, classic manifestations of pity. Um, They are about the photographic, photorealistic representation of vulnerable others as um, evidence of these people's undeserved suffering and they appeal to our common humanity as a cause for our action on their vulnerability. And here are some more from the uh, 1984 uh, BBC um, coverage of the Karem famine in Ethiopia. Uh, That was a watershed moment in humanitarian communication, and which was a trigger for um, the Live Aid um, initiative at the time. Uh, Now, despite the influence that these images um, have had on uh, the politics of humanitarianism, uh, we can see certain features, representational features of these these, uh, images that have become the object of intense criticism. Um, They have been accused of representing famine through a colonial gaze on the object of representation. So the human body is fetishized, its uh, emaciated corporeality is foregrounded, and the condition of the sufferer is represented through thorough passivity, both in the sense that these people are doing nothing, uh, but also in the sense that there are no individuals in these images. They appear with others as groups or en masse. And so they have been accused for precisely this, for dehumanizing vulnerable others, for depriving those others of key properties that signify humanity and therefore, for uh, maximizing, if you like, the moral distance between us and them. Now, the response to these images within, if you like, a trajectory of humanitarian communication look like this, what we might call positive images or images of intervention. Now, these apply, obviously, a different gaze on um, the object of representation. Here, the human body is dignified. The focus is on eye contact, or at least on the pur- purposeful gaze of the uh, of those represented, on uh, smiling faces, and the condition of the sufferer again is active, in the sense that they are doing something, even if that something is engaging with us through their look. But also in the sense of individuation, these people are individuals and sometimes not represented here in other uh, types of appeals, uh, we can talk about personalization. These people are given a history, they're given a name. They are somebodies. Now, we might say that this is a different politics of pity. One, that in responding to the critique of dehumanization of the earlier representations I showed, seeks to represent distant suffering in terms of a humanity that is, however, one might claim, pretty much like our own. So what these images seem to be saying is that these children might live far away, they might be out of our sight, but they're pretty much like our own children. And in fact, as Stan Cohen, who is, is honoured to see him here, puts it, uh, but is this boy really as real? Positive imagery hardly makes things easier. Can you really imagine yourself as an industrious and resilient Zarian woman learning to construct a sewage system? So what we might claim is that these pictures, despite the fact that they turn around the politics of pity, um, the traditional politics of pity uh, accused of dehumanization, perform a different form of othering. they do not so much dehumanize as perhaps they overhumanize the other in the sense that they um, represent her or him with a humanity that is too close to the humanity of the Western figure, the Western actor, the Western subject if you like. There is therefore, I am suggesting, a, a paradox in the politics of pity. On the one hand, um, this is a politics of representation that relies on photorealism, on images of others as they are, um, so as to appeal to our common humanities, so the discourse of common humanities is absolutely crucial in, uh, in articulating uh, the imperative to act here as a cause of, solid- of solidarity action. Now, this humanity may be the fallen humanity, or the deficit humanity, of dehumanization, or it might be the appropriated over-humanity of the positive imagery. Nonetheless, common humanity is the morality of pity. And yet, this is precisely a politics of representation that ultimately fails to establish the common in common humanity. It can only represent the colonial gaze, uh, sorry, vulnerable others through either the colonial gaze, dehumanization, or the interventionist gaze of appropriated humanity. Sorry. Welcome. Thank you. So, um, it is precisely this paradox of pity, the failure of pity to address the question of humanity, which is its main moral claim that has led Luc Boltanski, the author of Distant Suffering Politics, Morality and the Media to speak about humanitarianism today as experiencing precisely a crisis of pity. And this is how he formulates the question. Why, he says, is it so difficult nowadays to become indignant and to make accusations, or in another sense, to become emotional and feel sympathy, or at least to believe for any length of time without falling into uncertainty in the validity of one's own indignation or one's own sympathy. Now, the argument I'm making today is that the contemporary response to the crisis of pity, trying to resolve the paradox of representation, the paradox, the question of humanity, is a new, emerging politics of representation, what I call, after Richard Rorty, a politics of irony. The politics of irony, I claim, no longer relies on the common humanity, the humanity we share with those distant others, as a cause for our action. It relies, uh, uh, rather, on self-reflexivity, our own awareness of how impossible it is, indeed, to represent otherness itself and yet how important it simultaneously is to try and place that other within a framework of representation. And this is a position, as I said, articulated by the uh, philosopher Richard uh whom I'm very critical of because he's in favor of the model and of the politics of irony, and I I am not. But it also resonates quite uh, well, I think, with our uh, next speaker's work on the post-emotional society. So one might claim that the politics of irony is actually a post-humanitarian politics. So what I want to show is this shift from pity, as we saw it represented so far, to a politics of irony by focusing on two different kinds of uh, humanitarian um, representation, uh, two genres of, of humanitarian communication, campaigns and celebrity. And what I want to argue furthermore is that far from a purely moral question, This shift from pity to irony is in fact motivated by a marketization of the humanitarian field which finds itself operating in an increasingly competitive global media environment and therefore adopts the practices of corporate communication and straightforward show business. But first things first, these are the kinds of campaigns that I have been focusing on in my work, uh, the humanitarian imaginary Um, Now, I don't know if some of you recognize uh, the uh, one on on your left-hand side there. It's a UNICEF, uh, sorry, it's an Oxfam appeal from 2008 called Be Humankind. It is an appeal that introduces the imperative to act on vulnerable others through a graphically animated story of a senior citizen, this woman, elderly woman, who walks past media screens in, a, in, in the street of her neighborhood uh, in pure indifference. She's completely indifferent to what she, she sees on newspaper headlines or, or you know, television screens. Um, but ultimately, as she walks towards the square of her, of her uh, neighborhood, she realizes the consequences of her own indifference in her own life because small insects of injustice start coming up to her. And so she joins fellow citizens in the town square to confront what we might call the monster of injustice. It's down there in the second representation. As they all together speak out, literally uh, light coming out of their mouths against the monster, a phantasmagoria of fireworks wraps up the planet and concludes the message. So, Be Humankind, which is the Oxfam slogan of this campaign, is the only linguistic text that appears on this, um, uh, on this uh, uh, ad, uh, together with the Oxfam brand, of course, and contact details of the website. Now, what is interesting about this kind of appeal, and of course, you can see another one there, UNICEF in China, where the sufferer appears as a ghostly figure. And uh, a newer one from this year. I'm grateful to one of my PhD students for pointing this out to me. Uh, Action Aid. This is a quiz. Find your feeling. So you click, <coughs> and and then you have to interact with the website of the organisation, um, uh, answering questions like, "What is your favourite feeling? Compassion, anger, uh, joy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's your favourite picture? Is it a, a, a child that suffers? Uh, a child that is happily playing in a school uh, playground um, here somewhere in London? Uh, is it a woman, you know, collecting flowers somewhere in the fields, etc., etc.? Um, so these are, if you like, textual choices through which the um, the imperative to act on others is mediated. Are mediated. Now, two things are important here. First, in terms of the Oxfam, because I want to, to stick to that just to kind of uh, give a focus to this uh, presentation, uh, graphic animation breaks with the traditional aesthetics of reality, of the photorealism that we saw earlier uh, that are part of a politics of pity. This is part of a, of a range of playful textualities that problematize the act of representing suffering itself. Graphic animation fictionalizes our own everyday life, makes us strange to ourselves, and through that process of estrangement, it enables a sense of self-reflexivity that helps us contemplate on the consequences of what we do. The second feature, apart from the fictionalization of the context is, and, and the kind of playful uh, textuality, is the absence of suffering others. Now this, one might say, addresses the whole question of compassion fatigue. We are tired of seeing that. We're tired of the previous images. Um, That has led to a thorough desensitization of Western societies. So instead of representing others, what we see now is a focus on us. The focus is on the Western actor. Yet at the same time, um, what becomes instrumental in actually cultivating the disposition of being humankind is not the condition of the vulnerable other who remains distant and out of sight. It is our own personal condition. Now, I would claim that these practices are not simply a, a kind of if you like, intellectual or philosophical engagement with the question of humanity, but very much connected with the corporatization of the humanitarian field. They are practices of branding. And branding relies on foregrounding the brand, Oxfam, or or ActionAid, Amnesty International at the expense of foregrounding the message, why these organisations are there and why they are asking us to act on this and others. So branding is elliptical communication, flags the brand, silences um, other forms of justification, communication about suffering. Let me move very quickly to celebrity humanitarianism now. It's a very interesting uh, medium, if you like. It is a medium. Celebrity is a medium, a corporeal medium of articulating uh, discourses of solidarity. Now, all celebrity, sorry, uh, all celebrity, uh, I must say from the very beginning, has relied upon an ambivalent performance. On the one hand, celebrity uh, invests So on the one hand, celebrity talks about uh, the condition of vulnerable others by virtue of having been there and seen them. So she is talking about their experience through her own testimonies. At the same time, what she does in articulating that experience is that she is capitalizing on precisely that public persona that she has in Western societies as, as, as an icon, as a Hollywood star. And it is, I would say, precisely this articulation of the experience of suffering others through the voice of the the celebrity and her aura as a key figure of Western entertainment culture that commands that massive attention uh, and brings hope, at least to the UN, uh, for a public engagement with its causes. And this is very much the UN strategy, uh, celebrity advocacy. Now, my point is that even though celebrity has always operated on that ambivalence of speaking for distant others whilst being a figure of of the Western entertainment industry, um, in fact, today, celebrity humanitarianism has become increasingly confessional. That is, it relies on the communication of the celebrity's own emotions rather than the experience of vulnerable others. And let me make that point uh, through illustrating the performances of Audrey Hepburn, on the one hand, who was a, 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 a UN UNICEF uh, ambassador uh, in the period 1988 to 1992, with Angelina Jolie, who is, of course, one of the most well-known humanitarian figures today. Now, with Hebbun, one might say um, that she was performing a strictly professional role as a UN uh, 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 ambassador. And this performance enacts a pure politics of pity. Similarly to the photojournalism of the earlier campaigns we saw, she evokes the people of Ethiopia as an entity distinct from us, so as to claim their humanity, Her humanitarianism might have been patronizing or apolitical, and she has been accused of that. But it tries to present others as separate from her and to represent their humanity as their own. It would have been great if we had time to look at a couple of clips from, uh, well, they're all available on YouTube in terms of, you know, the contrasting performances of the two celebrities. For now, I'm just going to stick to a couple of quotes that I think very clearly illustrate my point. Here is Hepburn talking at a press conference in 1988 on Ethiopia. I am very impressed, she says, by the people of Ethiopia, by their beauty, their dignity, their patience, their enormous desire, will to help themselves. They are not just sitting here waiting. Their patience is a patience that is coming partly from from their religion and partly from their characters for dealing with their lot the best they can. Now, with Jolie, we have a very different, if you like, um, constitution of a public public persona. Uh, You probably all know that she's actually fusing uh, her humanitarian um, uh, performance with her private life, adopted children, with her professional life as an actress, uh, human rights films, but also as an entrepreneur that is actually funding actively multiple aid and development projects. Um, So, we can talk about the hyper-celebritization of humanitarianism in her case, uh, whereby, by bringing together her humanitarian work with her private life, what she does is she prioritizes her own emotions about suffering others over the voice of those others. And here is uh, a kind of a, a paragraph I wanted to compare. The refugees I have met and spent time with have profoundly changed my life. The eight-year-old who saved her brother taught me what it is to be brave. The pregnant woman <coughs> in Pakistan taught me what it is to be a mother. And the paralyzed boy who was shot in the back with his big smile showed me the strength to an unbreakable, of an unbreakable spirit. So today, I thank them for letting me into their lives. One might call that a much more egocentric story about um, a humanitarian is more, but the others are vehicles for a performance of herself. Uh, I don't have time to go into the fact that this, this particular performance is not an one-off, actually resonates with a confessional culture of contemporary celebrity. Those of you who study sociology or media or cultural studies already know about intimacy at a distance as a key, if you like, modality for the performance of celebrity today. My feelings are open there in the public. But what I wanted to say is that an important consequence of intimacy at a distance Um, is that it is now the emotions of the celebrity or her humanity that become, uh, if you like, the point of identification for our action rather than the distinct, if you like, humanity of those others. So in a a manner parallel to campaigns, the celebrity's appeal to solidarity rests on the one hand upon the Hollywood star as a powerful site for identification and on the other Uh, upon an absence again of suffering others whose voice is eliminated from this communicative exchange and solidarity here again in the UN uh, humanitarian politics uh, becomes a way by which we engage with the the plight of others uh, through the pleasures of show business reproducing a moral distance between us and them So what I would say, concluding, is that these emerging textualities of humanitarianism respond to the crisis of pity, the impossibility of pity to represent the truth of suffering. What they do instead is they urge us to turn to our own truths, our own lifestyle choices, and their implications, as in the Oxfam campaign, or the lifestyle choices and emotional interiority of the celebrity, as in Angelina Jolie. So what I call the solidarity of irony is precisely this sense of commitment towards vulnerable others which flourishes within a world of contingent and some would say postmodern meanings and values not in the form of a universal truth but in the form of stories of suffering that mundanely cultivate the virtue of what Rorty calls being kind to others as the only social bond that is needed. Now, uh, my last... uh, Uh, paragraph here. What are the implications of ironic uh, ironic morality, the morality of irony for solidarity? First of all, irony proposes a solidarity that that justifies action on others as a way of realizing our own humanity, whilst the distant others are left out of the communicative picture altogether. Be humankind, explore your feelings, or feel my pain as uh, Jolie would put it, is about enhancing our social consciousness and improves our moral conduct, makes us better people, if you like. The second consequence is that at the same time, solidarity marginalizes the vocabulary of justice. There is no space in the stories of self-fulfillment for a vision of social change or for an alternative social order. For the tearful celebrity or the Oxfam Be Humankind campaign, they did not produce a different moral imagination of the world beyond us, but on the contrary, turn the political question of suffering as injustice to a depoliticized practice of sentimental self-expression. There was something more I wanted to say, but I think I will leave it to that and expect more to come uh, in question time. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Hello, I apologize for being late. I'm Stepan Meshtovich. Um, London is kind of tough on an American. Left is right. The cars that will kill you come from the wrong side. You all speak a very peculiar kind of English, which is very hard to understand, and your streets are winding. So I'm sorry, but here I am. Uh, I'm going to speak about atrocities based upon my experiences as an expert witness in many different kinds of war crimes trials from The Hague concerning the genocide in <coughs> Bosnia. I was also expert witness at three war crimes trials pertaining to Abu Ghraib, those of uh, Linda England, Sabrina Harmon, Javal Davis. I was also expert witness uh, the trials of Operation Iron Triangle, which involved a certain Colonel Steele, who was the hero of a movie called Black Hawk Down uh, in a previous war. But in Iraq, uh, he commanded a regiment which all in all now uh, slaughtered um, Iraqis and uh, subsequent cases after that. The uh, conceptual rubric that I'll be using is one that I came up with called post-emotionalism in a book uh, I published called Post-Emotional Society. It's different from postmodernism, in that it does not see the world as just a sea of circulating fictions, which is what Baudrillard claims, and it's different from modernism it does not see the world as a place with very firm frames that give us choice or enable us as Anthony Giddens claims. I steer a different road and the reason I do that is uh, in all these trials there have been certain very peculiar absurdities that have come up. I'll, I'll list them all and then I'll explore uh, what some of them are and try to um, explain how it is I try to come to terms with them. So in the war in 1990s that was in the former Yugoslavia The line that the Serb, uh, the Belgrade regime, gave to the world as rationalization was that they were fighting the Turks from 1389. And it's not that they were fighting in their uh, broadcast Bosnian Muslims, but they called them the Turks. And it seemed like they repeatedly put down the Battle of Kosovo, which was a decisive battle in which the Muslims won and the Turks lost, and of course. Uh, Islam got a foothold in Europe. And that event, which happened over 600 years ago, seemed to be haunting them in 1992. On the face of it, absurd. However, it did have real consequences. Again, I don't want to offend my hosts, but the major government in London referred to Belgrade as their ally. Uh, you could look at the siege of Sarajevo at that time as one in which the United Nations protective force basically uh, shipped over food, bandages, and medicines, but kept them in a concentration camp. Uh, There was no effort made to stop the daily shelling, sniping, and so forth. So it's that connection or disconnection, a dysfunctional connection of act, of emotion, of group and individual, which are co-pulsed emotional, as opposed to emotional, which is, all right, the Belgrade regime started this. The Bosnian Muslims in Sarajevo unarmed, hungry and defenseless. The obvious emotion, but it's not obvious, should be one of compassion. That's not what it was. The compassion went to the Belgrade regime for being afraid of the people whom they were shooting. That's what I call post-emotional. It is anomic. It is dysfunctional, but I think it's very real. Now in the Abu Ghraib cases, <clears throat> again, everyone thinks they know everything there is to know about Abu Ghraib, but It's not true. The court-martials basically sent away seven individuals, which the U.S. government immediately labeled as the seven rotten apples. They were immediately identified, they were court-martialed, and everyone's done with it. It's as if the abuse at Abu Ghraib was expiated by those people going to prison. Five years later, the Levin-McCain report issued by Senators Levin and McCain uh, proved conclusively and said it very bluntly, the seven rotten apples, of course, were not responsible for the abuse at Abu Ghraib. Those techniques of torture, and there were techniques, came down from the White House, White House lawyers, memorandums, it involved CIA, other government agencies, all of which worked in concert with army military intelligence. What those seven rotten apples did, if one looked very carefully, and I was, you know, on the defense team, so three of them, was like one drop in an ocean of abuse and torture, which even include killing people with their bare hands at Abu Ghraib. <coughs> but I, I mean, one of the soldiers, Jeremy Sivitz, was convicted of taking one photograph, one photograph, not like 10 or 20. He did not punch anybody, did not hit anybody. He walked into the scene of abuse. Somebody handed him a camera and said, here, take one photo. From that one photograph, the government concocted three crimes, dereliction of duty, conspiracy, and maltreatment. And he was sent to Leavenworth for a year. One of the other soldiers I was on a defense team for, Sabrina Harmon, uh, yes, she had a you know, big smile, thumbs up, and so forth, but I testified in the defense uh, on the witness stand, uh, Americans like to smile. and also <laughs> Someone's taking pictures, it, it is a cultural thing, they will smile. But nevertheless, I, I was serious about it, the jury believed it. They also smiled when they heard it. <laughs> You guys are not American, I can tell. (laughs) But in any case, she did not, again, punch anybody, hit anybody. Uh, She was basically in the photos uh, having her picture taken. But my point is, uh, what has not come out is that the history, the post-emotional dysfunctional connections of what they were doing. It came out much later in the Levin McCain report, and let me explain it to you. Basically, it, it's a very strange story. It's, it's a story you, you couldn't make up even if you tried. There was something called the SEER techniques, S-E-R-E, Survival, Evasion, Resist, Escape. These were techniques developed by the United States Army to train its soldiers that if they were taken prisoners, how to avoid giving away information. But they were based on what the North Koreans did during the Korean War to American soldiers. but What the North Koreans did, I know it gets a little complicated, they would um, impose certain techniques on the U.S. soldiers, not to get the truth out of them, but to get them to, quote, confess on the media that Americans are imperialists. So the techniques were originally designed to gain falsehood. The Americans looked at those techniques and said, okay, we're going to use them on our soldiers as training. And then those same techniques underwent another shift by which they were used at Abu Ghraib by the Americans, these are North Korean techniques, in order to so-called gain truth. There's no real logical connection here, but I think there is a post-emotional one. It went through several sequences of this junction, this connection, until it finally came out to be this absurdity. So the facts that were reported, even as the trials were coming out in the Taguba report and the Fay report are quite shocking, and that is 90%, that 90 9-0% of the inmates at Abu Ghraib were ordinary Iraqis. They had no information to give. The Americans were using these techniques on them, which were not designed to get truth anyway, (laughs) that is, beating them up, punching, slapping. These are actual techniques. There's a list of them and how to implement them, which could only get you a lie to make somebody stop beating you up could not even give you the truth. So I'm saying from a modernist perspective, it's very illogical. You cannot explain using modernity. You know, all the things that we believe that there are norms and sanctions and beliefs and they work in synchrony uh, from Parsons to Giddens and all that, none of that's here. This was a tremendous social dysfunction. Uh, And yet, it was firmly believed by the soldiers there because they were told that that these were terrorists, emotional, uh, remnants of 9-11 were constantly used. Certain bases and camps within Ghraib were called Camp Victory. They were cl- named after certain uh, firefighters who died in New York City in 9-11. 9-11 was constantly used as the emotional justification for everybody there to participate in this horrendous event. Now, shifting gears to uh, another case, and that was Operation Iron Triangle. It occurred in uh, March of 2009 which was when the surge, so-called, was occurring in Iraq. That's when General Petraeus was uh, sent over there to basically rescue uh, the military situation in Iraq from becoming a uh, military defeat. What the surge involved was not just a, an increase in troops, but also a difference in uh, mentality, one from simply identifying targets and killing them to one of trying to... Uh, to convince the Iraqi people that the Americans were there to protect them. Well, what we forget in empirical reality is that just because the order comes down that way, the brigade commanders who are in place don't want to necessarily go that way. So Colonel Steele uh, resisted that order and kept the old order. Well, in this particular incident, what happened was there was uh, a place near Baghdad that was so-called identified by intelligence, American intelligence, as being a nest bed of uh, Al-Qaeda. The rules of engagement that day were to kill every military-age Iraqi on sight. If you see one, and he's between ages of 12 and 60, the orders were, you shoot. You do not wait for that person to show you hostile intent. They do not have to have a weapon. They do not have to uh, even look at you. You see them, you shoot them. So that was the rule of engagement. Now if you look at that in terms of representationalism, uh, if you look at the movie Black Hawk Down, which has you know the character played of, of Colonel Steele, that movie is very different in that the order there was very much you wait until the other side is shooting before you shoot back. But that changed considerably here. So the soldiers landed. <clears throat> they come upon uh, some houses. Ostensibly, they see farmers, goats, sheep, no weapons. An old man sticks his head out. He's shot dead. Turns out later, that it was a 60-year-old man who was uh, an Iraqi policeman and supposedly on the side of the Americans. But that was never prosecuted. Uh, the soldiers go around clearing other places, and they come across four or five others, all of whom are hiding behind women and children, these Iraqis, you know, so the Americans will not shoot them. Um, and here's the, the strange part of the story. The soldiers show compassion. They do not carry out the rule of engagement. If they had, if they had just shot those Iraqis, even though they were holding up uh, babies and hiding behind women, none of them would have been prosecuted. They didn't shoot them. They took them prisoners. And then uh, as, the, uh, as they realized that this was not a nest bed of enemies of, of enemy diesel farmers, a uh, radio message came in that said, why do you have any F-ing prisoners? That was from the first sergeant who was directly with the colonel. And so then the soldiers were like, oh my God, we messed up. They shot the prisoners. And then they were prosecuted for murder. Um, It's it's a very, again, strange story because it's not something you normally see in representations in movies, in novels, even in reports, because in a normal uh, arrangement of things, you know who your enemy is, the enemy shows you hostile intent, when they do you have a right to defend yourself against the hostile intent. Here again you have a dysfunctional and yet very emotionally laden uh, logic, if you will, which I'm calling post-emotional, which helps to explain what happened, but doesn't leave us with any sense of uh, you know, uh, satisfaction. Um, at the Article 32 hearing, there was soldier after soldier that testified that these were the orders that they were given. Those were the ROE for that day to shoot on sight. Uh, there was, for a while, on YouTube, a clip. So one of the soldiers put one of the brigade commander who actually issued that speech, and then, of course, it was removed <laughs> um, after it was learned it was on YouTube. So, you know, from the trial process, which was under oath, to other evidence, there's no doubt that the order was given. Nothing happened to the colonel. Those guys went to prison, but. In general, though, the entire uh, philosophy of how to treat um, enemy combatants in war has basically been swept under the carpet. So uh, in the remaining five minutes, I will just uh, try to wrap this up in a sort of theoretical way. Um, I don't see these events as just, in a postmodern sense, as just ironic or as just random circulating fictions. I think they do have a logic. Uh, Going back to the works of Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote um, Democracy in America, there's one passage in there, if you ever read it, which speaks (coughs) to me It may or may not speak to you, and that is when Tocqueville is explaining how the Americans went about exterminating the Native Americans differently than the Spanish. And the difference was that the Spanish, according to Tocqueville, would just simply let out the uh, big dogs and be brutal. But the Americans made sure that they first signed a treaty with the Indians, and then they broke it because there's something puritanical about putting it on paper, having rules and regulations. You can always find a way out, but you are not a barbarian because you have signed a treaty. (laughs) So the thing that I see that's the common ground here is something I'm I'm working on now is is post-emotional law, that these huge cases of atrocities from this war, from Abu Ghraib to some of these slaughters, have been neatly conceptualized because, quote, they had their trials. were put some certain people (coughs) put away in jail even though the people in the upper levels uh, have not been held to be accountable and in that way it's it's packaged it's it's finalized but does not leave a final sense of expiation Um, and another way that I would put it is if one looks back historically at what I think was a genuinely emotional as opposed to a post-emotional way of handling these kinds of war crimes it it was uh, the chief prosecutor Uh, Nuremberg, and that was Robert Jackson, who said it is a caricature of justice to prosecute the little men who are involved in in, uh, war crimes. But in in these particular cases, it is the little men, the little enlisted men, the uh, people who are not officers, the people who had no responsibility, who have been put away. And yet, it has been, for the most part, satisfactory. To journalists, to writers, to the public, to most people, it's like uh, the bad guys went to jail, the good guys are still in power. We're done, and I'm suggesting to you that the situation is much more complex, and that there is a dysfunctional emotional logic going on, on out there that's giving us false sense of expiation and a false sense of morality when uh, the situation is actually much more intricate. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Good evening, and thanks for coming. Um, I'm Bruna Seu, and as Claire said, uh, I work at the Psychosocial Studies Center of Birkbeck, University of London, but also, which is quite crucial in terms of the way I approach the data, I'm a psychoanalysis psychotherapist. So I'm very grateful that issues of irrationality and complexity have been brought to the fore, because that's going to be very much my focus in my talk. I'm going to talk about motions, defenses, and denial, and um, I want to give you just a little bit of information of how I came um, to be interested in this topic. Fundamentally, it was out of frustration um, with the very little information there was about how ordinary people react to information about um, human rights abuses and uh, um, atrocities. Um, And the very um, uh, fragmented and, I would say, overwhelmingly monocausal explanations that were coming from the few studies that were indeed conducted in psychology, mainly in the field of psychosocial, um, of uh, helping behavior. So what I did was something quite simple. Um, I went and asked people how they felt, what they thought, and what they did following this kind of information. And that's what I'm going to bring you to tonight. Um, But before I start, I want to say that the main concern for me is um, what Stan Cohen calls the gap between knowledge and action. So that's my focus. And tonight I'm going to concentrate specifically on the role of emotions in what happens in that gap. And I'll try to present quite a sort of, hopefully, a complex picture. That it's a bit, um, it goes a bit all over the place. So bear with me. Now it's going to work. Yes. Um, this is just to give you very little information uh, on what I did. So I conducted nine uh, focus groups, <laughs> preceded by three uh, pilot studies. Uh, with a total of 64 participants between the the two groups, and they were in the UK, that's the data I'm, I'm bringing you tonight, although the study was also replicated in the Basque country in Spain. The groups were heterogeneous, and the participants were mixed in terms of age, ethnicity, class, and sexual orientation. The age range was also quite um, wide from 19 to 66 and um, contained a wide variety of self-defined ethnic and social class backgrounds. My main interest was to facilitate what I call naturally occurring group discussion. Simply, people were given three props, and I'm going to show you what I gave them, and they were asked to pay attention to (coughs) what they felt, what they thought when they read this information, and then to refer back to what they normally do with this kind of information, um, and particularly what follows uh, from that. And And also, I invited them to talk to each other as people would in the street or at the dinner party. So, um, this is what I gave, me, gave them. I gave them two appeals from Amnesty. Um, the first one um, is pretty horrendous and uh, one of the reasons why I chose this ad- the advert, oh, sorry, here we go. Um, this uh, campaign uh, with the help of Amnesty uh, was that immediately draws attention to the gap between knowing and doing. It is in the title. Don't read it unless you're willing to help. So the message is very much there from the beginning. Also because the information given is pretty horrendous. The first bit tells the story of an Afghani woman who, um, desperate to find food for herself and her children, goes out and is abducted by the army. Um, kept for three days, uh, raped repeatedly and when she goes back home she finds the kids have died of hypothermia and then it continues with another story that the title is they made me eat human flesh and finally I cannot describe what they did to me. Now this is crucial and I'll come back to it later because there is an invitation to engage your imagination, your fantasy, not as the victim, but as the perpetrator as well. The next one was an article from The Guardian, and again chosen specifically because in the title there is again the connection of turning a blind eye, ignoring (coughs) what um, the knowledge tells them to do or to you know, feel, and also because it uses at the end the case, two case studies which are very much based on the amnesty way of conveying information is also backed up by uh, amnesty reports. The third one, finally, it's about the campaign against torture and the reason why I chose this one is because it invites identification. So this time, um, imagine yourself, boom, breaking the microphone, Um, imagine yourself um, being tortured, basically, at the end of this torture device. Um, Now, I'm going to go through this very quickly, and in fact, I'm going to skip this altogether. I'm going to, first of all, give you a very brief categorization. This is... Fundamentally, in, the, um, in an attempt to map the kind of emotional responses that were coming from the participants, um, there were three groups. The first group is the one that, in my mind, moves the reader, moves the audience towards the other. So we have anger, empathy, sympathy, identification, moral outrage, and some kind of guilt. And I'll come back to the kind of guilt that provokes different reactions. The second type um, moves the self away from the other, and this is when participants felt too upset and disturbed, emotionally destroyed, as they put it, sick, horrified, and they felt terribly anxious. And finally, um, which partly has already been referred to, this kind of self um, referential loop, where the self (laughs) is first of all moving towards the other suffering, but then comes back to the self. This might be because people can't make sense of what they're reading, Um, they don't know what to do, so a sense of helplessness, they feel despondent, or there is shame and a different kind of guilt from the one I was describing before. So what I'm going to present you with is uh, some kind of um, Uh, model, uh, really, that I called psychodynamic equilibrium, but more than one, equilibria. And I'm going to go through these three. Um, And I chose this particular uh, graphic representation precisely because these three ways of being emotional or doing emotions are not separate. They overlap, but also there is a dynamism inside, so that people move from one to another, but also um, they use one to defend against the other is quite complicated. So I I invite you to think precisely like that as a very dynamic model, yeah? Not something that is quite static. So in the first one, um, highly influenced by uh, Stan Cohen's work, I use the word denial because um, referring precisely to how people account for their um, emotional responses and particularly for not doing much after um, they they feel emotionally engaged. Um, And the concept of bystander is very, very important here because the way I understand bystanding phenomena is um, as representing conformity. So the middle of the road is the representation of um, what everybody knows, Explanations that everybody can recognize and they circulate in society and therefore they make sense, they're normalized and so on and so forth. So from this point of view, um, what Staub calls the societal tilt is very important because this is really what is voiced here in what Cohen calls vocabularies of denial. Part of these vocabularies, and that's where the psychological and the emotional comes back in a different way, is also used as an explanatory model. And we'll see examples of that in the data. Um, So how people using a sort of um, rhetoric, they use Uh, Accounts that uh, make sense of emotion in a very particular way um, to explain why they're not doing anything. And so compassion fatigue, for example, is one of these terms that really circulates and is used precisely for that purpose. Now, the difference between the first one, the audiences doing denial, and the audiences as reflexive consumers, is that the first one doesn't imply, in my mind, reflexivity. So people might use these accounts without necessarily knowing that they are using them as vocabulary denials. While the second one, the audiences as reflexive consumers, is precisely based on the idea of reflexivity. So instead of having the chain information, I knowing, feeling and reacting, what we have is an intermediary stage between feeling and reacting, where audiences become aware of having their own emotions stirred up, particularly by appeals. And so what determines action or inaction is in fact the outcome of that reflexivity. And again, I will give you examples of this. Um, So part of that is what I call the backfiring of guilt. And why guilt doesn't always work. The third one, we get into the rational and the really truly murky of human psyche because, um, and again, this operates on many different levels. There is a very immediate level in which very often uh, audiences feel as if they were the victims, they feel they are the victims, they feel brutalized by the information, um, they, it's traumatic, is upsetting and so on and so forth. So it's important to take that explanation at face value as well as <coughs> engage it, with it critically as you know, an explanatory model. So um, there is that level, but if we go further down, we need to really unpack the idea that they are traumatized. And what I want to um, show you through some data is some ideas of what might actually be traumatic for the audiences beyond the traumatic nature of the information per se, and this has got to do much more with sort of intrapsychic, um, very personal processes, emotional processes. So now I'm going to move to the data. Okay. Let's start with Bob. I won't be able to go through all of them in detail, so I will choose from each slide one in particular. Bob is Bob's is a very rich account because um, it contains several of the elements that I've just identified. First of all, I'll read it. It says, "Well, you tend to shut yourself off from it because it's so um, appalling." and you sort of feel sick. Your stomach makes you feel that it's really, you don't want to know about anything about it. So it's like, um, if you see a lot of it, you then becomes, it doesn't become anything. You desensitize yourself. And if you only see little bits of it, you get the opposite effect, where it's repulsion, all right? So you see these sort of posters and a lot of the time they're just, you know, make you repulse against it and you just want to run away from it, you don't want to look at it. Now, these extract contain so much. Now, if we look at the first line, we have, even though it doesn't call it like that, we have the description of a defense mechanism. Back to Freud, the idea that when the stimuli are too strong, or too unacceptable for us to process, something shuts down. So it's really a a protective, um, a self-protective function that is inbuilt in our minds. However, when you keep reading, you also see that something quite interesting happens in the second line, where you wonder, where is Bob's agency? What we find is that it's his stomach now that decides what he's going to do. So it's not him who doesn't want to know but it's actually stomach that says no, no, you don't want to go there. So this giving away of agency to the stomach invites you to think this is beyond my control, this is bigger than me, stronger than me, I can't help it. So there are really several levels in which you know that it, that are sort of taking uh, that, that his talk is taking place at. Um, and then introduces very specialistic uh concepts, even though he only mentions that desensitization but actually is talking in line three and four of habituation now this is a very, um, you know, it doesn't use the word, although other people do use it. it, is a very technical term. It comes from psychology and um, assumes that in our um, brains, literally, we respond lesser and lesser to stimuli, the more we're exposed to them. Uh, So if you are in a room and there is a bad smell, the longer you stay in the room, the less you feel the smell. And this is exactly the same model that Bob is using. And as you can see, there is hardly any morality in here. It's all very mechanistic, and it's all very uh, carefully constructed. Um, And then there is this double bind. You can't win. Um, If you see too little, then you get shocked. If you see too much, then you don't react. So there is really a double bind for humanitarian and human rights organizations. How much can you show these people in order to make them react? Anyway, let's move. So this is an example where what we see is the description of an emotional reaction, but also quite an elaborate and a sophisticated accounting around that emotional response. Um, here, um, Actually, these terms get mentioned, but I want to stay with Carol at the beginning, where she mentioned the word again, desensitization, because they seen too much on the television, Um, and she completely agreed that this is what is happening, and again, there is a sort of like a mechanistic nature response. Psychobabble, I would put under the um, heading of um, very powerful (coughs) vocabulary. And I think this this quote is really quite powerful. So This is how Mandy explains not doing anything. Maybe it's just that it's too big because, I mean, for me my passion has always been the environment and I used to belong to Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and I rattled a can and blah, blah, blah and one day it was like a switch went off in my head and I said, it's pointless. You can't do it. You might be trying to save the lions and the tigers and so on, but they are going, and that's really sad, and it breaks my heart. But they are going to go, and you have to let go. And you say that the next generation isn't going to know uh, what lions and tigers were, etc., etc., etc. Maybe it's the same with these human rights campaigns. It's kind of like you've got to let go. <laughs> So, what do we say here? I mean, just to go for the rhetoric, I think things like blah, blah, blah It's really quite demeaning. It really positions anybody who rattles of e, tries to get money and funding, as losers, lost, stuck in the past and so on. The message is, get over it, grow up, um, accept a realist rather than a- idealistic approach. This is very much the rhetoric. Um, and what I think the psycho bubble is important because this is very counselling language. Let it go. The boyfriend has been unfaithful. Let him go. <laughs> it's not working. Um, you know, grow, sort of. It's, it's really framed in the sense of development. You need to move on. It's, it's shown that you have ooh, um, okay progressed um, if you let go. Okay. Um, talking of letting up, oh no no, uh, guilt, guilt. Okay, um, I want to quickly go through this one because uh, as you can see this is the normative and reparative guilt and there you see it's all there. There is knowing, there is feeling and there is doing. However. Most of these people, they say, um, make you want to do something. doesn't say, I do something. Um, but it's, it's very much about, okay, I feel bad, I should do more, and I'm going to do more. Very different from this kind of guilt, where there is the backfiring, where people really feel that their guilt has been aroused, has been elicited to manipulate them to do something. So what we have here is anger and entrenchment and refusal to engage with the message. I really want to show you very quickly this to about shame. Is that okay? Okay, this is quite complicated. Um, Fred, I think that this kind of adverts, interesting choice of word, are counterproductive. Not because I don't think people should know this, but just because I don't think that the average person can deal with this. You read this, you push it right out of your mind because, because it's just so hard to acknowledge that you're part of the same species. That if another, if another person can do this, then you can do it. And that's, that's a horrible, it's unacceptable, it's unabsorbable. What I'm, I want to offer as an idea here is that there is a double shock here, there is a double trauma. There is the trauma of what you're seeing, of what Fred is seeing, but also it goes at the core of one of, according to Melanie Klein, one of our strongest defensive mechanisms, which is splitting, which is they are the bad ones, we are the good ones. And what this kind of information does, it cuts that kind of splitting and brings you face to face with you being exactly the same as them. And this could have really destabilizing effect um, because basically it brings the torture next to you. It's you. Um, And the shame that this can be bring to you and also it's interesting I don't want to bring biographies but Fred is somebody who is actually very politically involved and I think there is something that is, is very disturbing when you really try to fight a certain cause to realize that things are really quite murky and complicated finally I promise this is the last one um, Tina Amnesty used to have a campaign where they use a torture equipment and there's general agreement on a photograph to leave it up to you up to your imagination And in a way, that was kind of more shocking, you know, and I say, why? Your imagination was like, just like, you worked out what was going on. So I said, just so we become the torture. And Ian jumps in, exactly, because we can actually come up with the image of what someone has done. You've just done it. So it's what I would call the return of the repress. What you actually experience when you see these horrendous um, images might have something to do, might evoke some response in terms of your own sadism, in terms of your voyeurism, but also again the safety is gone because if you can imagine what you can do with this instrument, then you become the torturer, which again is very traumatic. So finally, going back to this, and I finished, finish. Um, what I'm suggesting is really that no one takes a firm and single and fixed position. People move. <coughs> and of course, <clears throat> what we need to understand is what is it that creates a pattern that then becomes almost stable? And I think this is what we're up against. And as campaigners, I would say that we need to understand what makes an equilibrium in order to tilt it towards action. So we need to know more. And that's partly what motivated the next study with Shani Orgad and Stan Cohen to know exactly more about those things. Thank
0: Thank you. So I did promise some very different and quite provocative engagements with um, tonight's theme. And um, what I'm going to do is open the floor to questions, and we're going to take them in groups of three. And if you could wait for the microphone to come to you before you speak, um, and also if you could state your name and affiliation before you ask your question, and please keep it short um, so that we can get as many in as possible, because I can see a few people with their hands up. Yes, you had your hand up first. Um, so one here. Um, One just here at the front, and then the one at the back.
1: Thank you for three very compelling and quite different presentations. Um, My question regards the use of the term politics in the first and the last speaker's presentation and its absence, perhaps in a way in the second speaker's presentation. I kind of felt that you mentioned political,
4: one of your activists was a political activist, but I didn't get a sense of politics coming from any of the three presentations. And I
1: really feel this in the use of the politics of pity, I didn't see the politics. In the use of the politics of solidarity, I failed to see the politics. And I felt there was something, a dimension perhaps missing here in relation to the audience. Um, I'd like you to comment on that.
0: We'll just take a couple more before we get the speakers to respond. Yeah.
1: Um, I also just want to echo the thanks for the three really provocative um, uh, discussions. But my question, I mean, all three of you have talked about the way Westerners represent for a Western audience suffering that has happened somewhere outside of the West. Uh, And while, you know, there's interest in discussing that, or it's interesting to discuss that, I'd be curious to know if you think that there's a difference in the way people represent suffering or atrocity that occurs in a place that they consider to be home, or if anyone has kind of started researching, or if there's an answer to the question, how communities respond to external representation of what they consider their own suffering.
4: So that's my questions. Okay.
0: And there was a question just at the back in the same section.
4: Thank you. Again, very interesting um, presentations. Um, I currently work in the homelessness sector, actually, where the trajectory of the representation of suffering is actually quite similar. Um, but my question is around these kind of representations, particularly the campaigns that were shown in the first and last presentation. Um, and I'm quite interested in this marketization idea and whether actually these campaigns, to some extent, are inviting an individual to become a consumer and buy into a certain narrative um, of suffering particularly and the the implications of buying into that narrative. So the idea that giving money or supporting or going to an event that will make you feel good will actually alleviate suffering elsewhere and perhaps the um, absence in that message of actually representation of the suffering itself.
0: Okay, thank you. So we've got three um, questions. I realize I didn't make you um, say who you were and and state your affiliation, so I'll have to do that in the next round. Um, One is where where are the politics, Um, which came from this corner. The second one are the different representations of suffering, of suffering at home, so to speak. And the third, the implications of buying into narratives of suffering. So I'm going to get
1: each panel member to address these questions. Starting with Lynn. Yes. Uh, Well, first to address Shaku's question on politics. talking about politics of pity or politics of irony for me, and I think I I made that quite clear, is talking about politics of representing distant suffering. It's a politics of representation. Now, the political element in representation um, lies in the fact that every representation is a choice, and every choice you make actually has effects, effects of power, in terms of creating particular understandings or perceptions of the self and setting boundaries in terms of where the other stands. So talking about politics of pity as a politics of representation takes suffering as a problem of representation and then tries to lay open the power dynamics that bring out particular connections between us and the other. I think that's where the political element lies, in identifying the power relationship that reproduces or challenging particular articulations of that, relationships on the self and the other. That, of course, doesn't mean that you cannot place the politics of representation within a broader framework of politics. And that connects to question uh, number three, in terms of you know how can we uh, bring marketization into Um, an explanation of these textual politics, politics of representation uh, in a coherent way, in a way that makes possible some form of critique. And I would say uh, that the connection there is precisely in the trajectory that I I presented that um, taking suffering as a problem of representation, the field of humanitarian communication has moved from A a practice and an ethos of representation where the distinctiveness of the other under the morality of common humanity was preserved, its objectivity was preserved, and we can discuss the problems with that, problems that have to do with universalism, dehumanization, etc., etc. It's a problematic discourse. Pity is not an innocent discourse of otherness and suffering towards. a a contemporary context for the articulation of this politics, irony, which I would describe (coughs) as a neoliberal context for the articulation of of, uh, the politics of of suffering. (coughs) It is um, a political context whereby the market sets the terms, sets the vocabulary, and dictates um, the purpose for which that communication is take place. And just to go back to your question, I think yes, that part of that, if you like, neoliberal, some would call it advanced liberal, or even biopolitical, if you take a Foucauldian perspective, of uh, a politics of irony in humanitarian communication, <coughs> is precisely the fact that it renders justifications for suffering, justifications for action on suffering, irrelevant to what you do. You can go online, sign a petition, give <coughs> a donation, but you don't even have to think about those others. And I think that this is a marketized logic, a logic that turns you to yourself, is quite utilitarian, in that you become the center of that action, both in terms of being the agent, but also the, um, the ends of, of that action. And I think the most powerful critiques we could perhaps put forward of these developing politics of representation is to, pl- to, to if you like, study more and um, deepen a critique of the neoliberal implications of humanitarian politics of representation today. I hope that answers your question. Now, Lizzie's question, I would say, um, you know, the distinction between uh, proximal suffering and distant suffering, well, you see, I don't think that distance and proximity are geographical categories. I think that... um, (laughs) proximal suffering can become distant suffering depending again precisely on politics of representation. So we other people, radically other people who might be next door or, or in the neighborhood uh, uh, you know, um, next to us and we could again construct as proximal people who might live you know, on the other side of the Atlantic. So one good example of that is the 9-11 and the way in which European publics, particularly European media, constructed that suffering as a universal suffering, a suffering of the West so to speak, whereas other sufferings um, are not constructed yes. like that You know, geographical distance remains moral distance, but I think it would be a great study, which I haven't done and I don't, I can't recall of any specific bibliography now uh, where people are actually comparing and contrasting <laughs> lovely, uh, representations of suffering with representations of distant suffering okay. thanks
2: um, well, there's politics all over my talk. I mean, I, I mentioned uh, clearly that this is a cover-up by the Bush administration in every single case. So just because I didn't say it, it's clearly implied. However, I, I don't want to just give a pat answer because uh, I want to relate it to um, the other the, the other two speakers as well. So I'll just be very brief. Um, there's a novel I think most of us know, "Notes from the Underground" by Dostoevsky, and the protagonist is mad at his boss and he nurses his anger and his rage (coughs) for several years. But he can't express his anger emotionally on the spot and say to his boss, you're abusing me. So three years later, he slaps him in a restaurant. But three years later, has passed. Again, I'm talking about the disconnection here. And everyone in the restaurant, including the boss, thinks the guy's just crazy. And of course, he is. But my point is, one looks at politics from this point of view, the disconnection. One can look at George Bush's... Uh, desire for revenge at 9 11, instead of taking it out on who did it, someone bin Laden, he takes it out against someone who did not, and that was Saddam Hussein. So it was kind of like the wrong person at the wrong time, kind of like notes from the underground. Maybe that's too provocative, but it's disconnected. And then in the psychoanalytic sense, you know, there's several books that are written about him that he did it mainly because Saddam threatened his father. And again, that was something that had lingered and fested for a long, long time. So you have all these people who suffered unnecessarily. I'm talking about the Iraqis, because of a politician's misplaced, displaced, dysfunctional connections of emotions.
3: Right. Um. Yes, there wasn't much politics with a big P, but I think there was a lot of politics with a small P in my talk. And what I mean is ideology in action, because ultimately I would be very surprised if you found anybody would say, no, I do not support human rights, but it's actually when they have to explain what they do with that concept that becomes much more complex. And I think it's very easy to paper over the cracks with these meta-narratives say politics here and there. In fact, what people do in their um, bizarre ways, contradictory ways, is what has impact and what has effects. So that's really what I'm interested in, is the bottom-up approach to human rights. And the quotes I brought here is precisely a representation of that, illustration of that. Um, in terms of uh, representation, um, whether somebody, how people react to representation of their own groups, I think that was part of the question. Um, yes, I have a couple of examples from my focus groups. One, um, they, they really both hinge on the idea of othering, and I think it's a really crucial concept. Um, one, a woman, for example, from Nigeria, uh, was talking about, uh, there was an a, this media cover of somebody giving birth on a tree because of flooding, and how this was idealized as these um, resilient um, Africans who can even give birth on a tree. <laughs> and the woman thought this was hysterical. Um, sort of anybody who is, A, giving birth simultaneously as drowning, tries to do her best, you know, whatever nationality color of your skin. But it would really brought it home for me was then she said, and anyway, um, they belong to a different group from mine, so I didn't really care that much. So the splintering, and when you talk about social group, is really not this unitary thing. (laughs) Um, And the other can be, as Lily was saying, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the physical distance. I think it's a construct that is um, brought in to justify very often why you don't care, where you draw the moral boundaries, yeah? Um, And part of the othering is the stereotypical representations of the other, that everybody does it, and there was really in the focus groups a recognition of that. Um, finally, about the third point, whether there is a connection between this um, consumerist approach to campaigning, I think that was the question, and um, audiences responding as consumers, I, absolutely, I think there definitely is, and there is evidence that if you address audiences as consumers, that's how they respond and so they'll question whether they're getting value for money, whether the money is spent well, um, whether they have been told the truth, whether they can trust the humanitarian agencies and so on and so forth.
0: So, yes. Okay, thanks. I think we've got time for three more short ones. Um, one here in the front. And then one over here. And if you could say who you are and, and where you're from as well, please. Um, Anne-Marie Payne. I work at the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion here at LSE. Um, my question's for you, Irene. Um, it was a fantastic panel and I could ask a hundred questions, but um, I was um, both fascinated and horrified by your insight that um, what these campaigns are creating is empathy with the perpetrators rather than the victims, and I wondered if you could comment more on that. Okay. And there was, there was one just over here. At the bus. <coughs> Hi. Um, my background is social psychology. Um, I have a question for Stefan. Am I pronouncing your name okay? Um, I found all the talks fascinating and I just wanted to pick up on what you said in your summary about this absurdity of prosecuting the little man. Um, just, I suppose what occurs to me is that you can always find an explanation for why people behave the way they do and given what we know from psychology and everything else about us all being very susceptible to social influences um, like that even psychopathy is often attributed to early experiences and my question really is what are your criteria for when a person actually becomes responsible and accountable for their own actions given that everything kind of originates socially
2: Hi, uh, Chris Grom, member of the public. Um, I just had a question, uh, generally to the panel. um, Thinking particularly about the different responses, possibly to clear disasters, earthquakes, and and so on, that cause a very acute uh, problem, (coughs) and um, responses to more ongoing uh, disasters, such as. Chronic poverty in lots of parts of the world, and I wonder if um, that, uh, you can say anything on the different responses of people to this. Possibly um, touching on the question of comple- complex causes of uh, of chronic poverty and the arguable complicity of Western audiences and their um, you know, lifestyles in perpetuating aspects of that.
0: Right. Okay. So we've got three. Questions there covering quite a variety of things. One is to do with um, somebody's troubled by identification with perpetrators um, that maybe some of these campaigns generate. The other is to do with responsibility for actions or rather individual responsibility for actions. And the other is um, a question about the complicity of audiences in um, the structural conditions that create um, poverty and suffering that is being um, represented. I hope that's a fair um, representation of the questions there. So, um, shall we start again with um, Lily?
1: I can only really respond to the third question, which was um, addressed also to me, um, and uh, what I will say there is that, yes, there is a difference, of course, between uh, emergency campaigns and more permanent campaigns and questions of um, um, of, of uh, poverty. Um, <coughs> I would say, and I didn't have time to uh, elaborate on that point. Uh, uh, today uh, that one of the forms that Im- crisis communication on, on, on emergency uh, aid takes place today is through new forms of journalism uh, a journalism of uh, disaster reporting that, in- that is based on live blogging and this is a form of journalism that has been appropriated by major broadcasting uh, corporations and is used online as a form of live footage but um, which you can follow on the internet And I would say that what is interesting again about this kind of emergency um, aid calls and appeals is that they rely very much on the ordinary person to come back with eyewitnessing account of what they see, mobile phones, Twitter, uh, you know, uh, emails, whatever there is. Uh, And again, I would say that even though they do function as, if you like, cosmopolitanizing news the sense that they connect us with, uh, with distant others, and perhaps they do uh, raise the question of action, there's always links for donations or uh, other forms of, um, of support. Um, they still kind of uh, mutate the structure of communication to the self. It is what each individual who happens to be eyewitnessing these particular events, and in fact, not even eyewitnessing from the scene of disaster. It might be people in other countries who are watching the news and chipping in with their own opinion, their own view, their own perspective on the events that actually make up the crisis communication blogs that we see representing uh, emergency um, uh, uh, appeals uh, in the news today. So I would say that uh, you know, um, online news are part of uh, the similar trajectory from pity to, to irony, very much self-oriented accounts of what is going on. Um, um, and in that sense, yes, there are distinctions but at the same time we, we, can, be, we can follow a similar pattern in, in, in terms of the self-centered, kind of uh, self-reflexive understanding of these campaigns. So uh, that would be you know, one answer, and I think I'll stop here because we don't have enough
2: yeah, I guess I'll answer the question that was posed to me. It's an excellent question. Um, I guess for about 50 years now, in criminology, everyone's focused on the individual sociopath. I mean, he's supposed to be cunning and has no remorse and no conscience and so forth. But I think what I'm trying to uh, introduce is the idea of thinking about a sociopathic group, a sociopathic society, a sociopathic uh, setting. In other words, empirically, I've seen, because I had to, uh, the psychiatric reports of the Rotten Apples and these other ones, there's not one single sociopath among them, Quite the contrary. They're all perfectly normal, perfectly—I mean, if you knew them, like I knew them, you'd have a drink with them, and you'd have a good time with them. They're just perfectly like you and me. So that is not an explanation that, you know, you can't—the government could not use that as an explanation for what happened. So. And that's the case in all of them. Um, about 1% of the population is sociopathic, where criminology seems to dump about 90% of the explanations onto them. You know, it doesn't really fit. I think we need to start thinking about sociopathic work settings, where we feel as we would with an individual personality disordered person. That is, that we don't count, that we are a thing, that we don't matter, that we've been dehumanized. And I think a lot of us feel that way in our workplaces. Uh, in a lot of different places. So, I, w- I would just, my, my answer is let's start thinking about a sociopathic uh, group work setting and environment that, you know, the wrong orders are given. When the people, and, and this is another thing that came out, when people are whistleblowers and they try to say that's wrong, the other people uh, boot them out, they ignore them, they silence them. Because that, that's what happens in dysfunctional families as well. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what happens <coughs> in the units. When somebody would say, you know, it's wrong to torture. It, it's, this, this order is, is BS and so forth. Instead of being applauded, instead of being listened to, they would be threatened. Uh, one of the testimonies, and I'll just stop at this, one of the soldiers testified when he tried to stand up for the people that are being abused. His fellow soldiers said to him, you keep talking like that, you're going to be next. So it's what happens in that setting but makes it so dysfunctional that the group itself becomes sociopathic. That's my response to you.
3: Um, Yes, I'll answer the question. Um, I think you used the word empathy. Yes, no, no. (laughs) If that's the impression I gave, that was wrong. Um, And I want to start from there with my definition of empathy, which actually is not mine. It's the capacity to feel an emotional response of sympathy for another followed by a curiosity for the other as other, so the whole idea of empathy is that you 're able to bridge the divide so you want to know about the other not because they're the same as you, but because they 're different from you now um, that 's not what i 'm describing. I think what the um, recon- what the participants were talking about uh, Um, the instrument of torture and the torture is recognition. So they recognize, which is very different, recognize something in them which Laplanche would say the other inside, which is an other that has been disavowed, pushed out, um, renounced, unacceptable and suddenly is there in their thoughts, they're having the torturous thoughts. So that is the the trauma, that is what is unbearable as well as the image. And that's where people cut off. It's one of the main answers, but I think something really happens there and it was brought up by the last quote. I hope he explained.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we um, show our warm appreciation to our speakers, I'm going to disclose the secret location of the drinks reception, <laughs> which is on the fifth floor of the old building in the senior common room. If you turn right out of this building and right again onto Horton Street, um, you'll, you'll find your way there. Um, but I'd really like to thank warmly our speakers for providing such a really interesting and stimulating panel debate this evening. So join me in thanking.